are now listening to the Soccer Football Podcast. Hello and welcome to the Soccer Football Podcast with me, Luke Smeek-Owens, and my co-host, Andrew Sev Severin. How is it going, everybody? So, Sev, the theme for this week, goals, goals, goals. A hell of a weekend of football. So many goals all around, all these different fixtures. Where do we get started? Well, there was 44 goals scored in all across the 10 games this week. So that was a ridiculous scoring clip. Incredible. Probably one that we won't catch the rest of the season, but it made for an absolutely entertaining week of Premier League soccer. Uh, The other theme that I observed watching the games this week is first half red cards. There was three of them, one in the West Brom game, one in the Chelsea game, and one in the Sheffield game. There was also a later red card in the Brighton game. So it made for some lopsided results. And But overall, definitely a very, very entertaining week of Premier League soccer. Some surprising results in there too. And yeah, that late red card with the karate kick we'll definitely get to later on in the show. So on the back of that, there's more news in the transfer market as that is still wide open. Emmy Martinez, Arsenal's, I guess, second choice goalkeeper. He was outperforming their first choice goalkeeper, got his move to Aston Villa. He actually uh, saved the penalty also this weekend in his debut. Um, Bigger news also uh, for those top clubs. Regulion completed that transfer from Real Madrid to Tottenham that we talked about last show. And Gareth Bale also moved from Real Madrid to Tottenham. How excited are you to see him back in the Premier League? I would say more interested than excited. We don't really know much about Gareth Bale because the news mill that surrounds him is so saturated with reports about this and that things that said he wasn't a great teammate in the locker room. Others that said he was more focused on golfing and then playing. And then many times when he took the field, his quality showed that he's still a terrific player. So I would say less excited and more interested. What I did recognize reading those reports is it's kind of a no loss move for Tottenham. The, The agreement that happened between the two clubs was that Tottenham would own about half of his weekly wages over the course of a one-season loan, which equates to about 12 million euro. If he can perform anywhere near the top level that Gareth Bale is capable of performing, that's a really, really solid loan move for Tottenham. If he can't, it's not the end of the world. It's a lot of money to pay, but I think it's a risk that Tottenham are happy to take. Yeah, and I'm sure those shirt selling, uh, that shirt selling money is definitely going to come in clutch too. That is a massive name, a name known all around the world, Gareth Bale. I remember those signs when he was going through those tough times at Real Madrid and playing for Wales, Wales, Golf, Madrid in that order. So definitely very interested to see him back in the Premier League. Uh, some more big signings, check in under has completed his loan to Leicester from Roma. They do have the option to buy come the end of that loan also. I think he's going to be an interesting signing if he actually can perform in the in the Premier League. I have some doubts around his physicality. 
just uh, something of note and maybe something that doesn't actually carry that much weight, but who was the last left-footed right winger to transfer from Roma to the Premier League, Luke? believe it was uh, an Egyptian lad. It was an Egyptian lad who has put together a pretty decent career in the Premier League so far. No, I'm by no means comparing the two players other than those very uh, trivial kind of features about them. But a player that had a really sterling youth career broke onto the scene as a very young player at Roma, maybe never quite reached the heights that some people were expecting, but he's going to have the most quality around him that he's ever had with Leicester in their midfield. So interested to see what happens. For sure. And feeding Vardy, that could be a dynamic duo in the Premier League. In addition to that, I think Eduard Mendy on the back of Kappa's performance this weekend is now finalized. Uh, he's going to be the the first choice goalkeeper for Chelsea and they've been dying out for that new signing. Kepa, the most expensive goalkeeper in the world, just has not performed up to standards. I think Chelsea are just about quitting their losses with that one. Yeah, I don't know much about Edward Mendy. Some people that I follow on Twitter whose opinions I trust very highly seem to think he's got potential, if if not already the finished product and a good player. So kind of hard not to do better than what Kep has done for Chelsea so far. Will be an interesting. I agree, and this year. for sure, and six five, he should be able to to reach more than Kappa has at the very least. In addition to that, why I was in a great mood all weekend. There wasn't just one signing from Liverpool; there were two. Thiago Alcantara from Bayern Munich has finally completed that move, and then we got Thiago Friday, Jata Saturday, Jata, around forty five million euros. Uh, it's not being paid all up front. I think it's just $5 million in the first 12 months. But that's a great player from a Premier League side. Uh, he's already proven what he can do in the Premier League, and I think he can be a phenomenal asset for Liverpool this season. Yeah, Thiago is one of my favorite players. I've texted you, I can't even count how many times in the past two years, with Thiago videos or you can't press Tiago YouTube videos or after a standout Tiago performance being like, this guy's ridiculous. So jealous of the, of the move because he's such a phenomenal player. He'll slot right into that team. But I do have a question about Jota. Where do you see him fitting in to the Liverpool lineup? He's a forward by trade, but he doesn't have the pace that Liverpool's wide players typically play with. And they also play that flat three, three man midfield, which I could see him slotting into, but it's probably not a position he's typically taken up often in his career. Uh, I mean, great point about about Jota there. I, I mean, it's hard to be as fast as Mane or Salah, but I know I've been complaining now for, I, I think, at least two years at the lack of depth that we've had on the bench. Mane and Salah have basically played every single game we've had for ever since they signed, really. And if one of those were to go down, I think we would be very short in those wide positions. And Shasta is actually someone of, of quality that can come in and replace them if need be. As we know, it's a condensed season also. So I don't think he's going to be short of playing time whatsoever. But I know Klopp, at, in his time with Dortmund, used to love playing that 4-2-3-1 formation. So uh, if we're playing a team that likes to sit back, because a lot of teams sit very defensively against Liverpool nowadays, I think we could see, you know, Salah playing up top, 
maybe Ormane, uh, and then Mane on one side, Jata on the other side, and Firmino in that ten role. Interesting. Yeah, it's it'll be it'll be fascinating to see how they integrate him into the squad. A player that I'm very high on. Anybody who's watched the Premier League and Wolves, who've been an exciting team for the past three seasons, know that Jata's a player of quality. So I'm excited to see what his role will be with Liverpool moving forward. And then just finally, the last transfer that we actually kind of got released to us in the last two days was Nelson Semedo. He'll be transferred from Barcelona to the aforementioned Wolves, Wolverhampton Wanderers for about 35 million euro. And there's talk of Max Ahrens, the Norwich City right back, potentially going the other way, or even Serginho Dest from the U.S. men's national team in Ajax. Uh, But with Semedo, they're getting a talented right back who will probably slot into one of those wing back positions that they're known for playing. Uh, an interesting transfer and another talented young player coming into the Premier League. Yeah, I mean, I thought he was honestly the worst player on the pitch when Barcelona got dismantled by Bayern. But I mean, a man of international pedigree, Wolves now have the money to spend. So I think he'd be very interesting to see in the Premier League. But anyway, that's enough of transfer talk. Let's get into some action. Um, I am slightly worried at this breaking news that came out today. Uh, I think the second wave of coronavirus is definitely coming in the UK. And David Moyes, Issa Diop, and Jack Cullen of West Ham all tested positive today for coronavirus. Um, West Ham just played Arsenal this weekend. Um, but they they were playing an EFL Cup game today. And so all, all of those members of the squad just returned home as soon as they got their tests. Uh, what do you make of that, Sev? I am also slightly frightened by it. The second wave of coronavirus is without a doubt coming. I would hope that since the Premier League restarted in June and had the interlude from March to June and continued play, you know, throughout the summer, they have plans in place to see that the season continues in a safe manner despite positive tests, because unfortunately that is the reality of conducting a sports league in the current climate. Arsenal was tested today as well as part of just the Premier League's bi-weekly or daily testing for the coronavirus and all tests came back negative, which is a good sign. But hopefully, like I said, they have plans in place for when things like this happen. They have contract tracing. What other whatever other means they have to curtail coronavirus breakouts in locker rooms or in games that will make it so that the season can progress in a safe, but also smooth manner. Um, For sure. And I mean, I'm not a classist uh, or or an elitist by any stretch of the imagination, but I'll tell you what, if the Premier League gets delayed or, are canceled from a team playing Luton Town or someone like that, I will be livid. Yeah, the EFL and the FA Cup and all those games we were playing lower tier sides, they're clearly lower on the fan importance spectrum than your 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 weekend Premier League fixtures. Yeah. Yeah, and I just don't think that it's going to be great 
for these games to take place, including Premier League size, because uh, reports actually came out that these lower league sides don't get the testing given to them because they can't afford it. And the Premier League clubs that are playing them are offering to pay for all these sides' tests pre-match so they don't have run into any any coronavirus issues down the road. And I just think that is possibly a recipe for disaster. But fingers crossed that this season can continue because, I mean, a few teams look really good out there. And obviously it goes without saying, wishing the best of health to everybody involved in a professional sports league in a career that puts you at risk. We're fans, of course. so we definitely want to see the season continue. But, you know, we're also humans with compassion. So hoping good health throughout the rest of the season and just hoping that there's proper planning in place. So that does it for our introduction for this second episode covering the second week of the Premier League season. We'll be right back with our weekend summary. Welcome back to the Soccer Football Podcast. We are starting the weekend wrap-up. So once again, we go in chronological order of the games played. And that first game, early on Saturday morning, was Everton-West Brom. Sev? So West Brom came out in this one, and they were looking like Norwich 2.0, donning the green and yellow kits. Uh, If I was one of their supporters, I don't know if I'd be pumped about that kit selection. It doesn't really do a lot to inspire confidence about a side that will be fighting to stay up this year, given that they're wearing the same colors as team that finished last place in the Premier League last year. As far as the game, uh, the first 25 minutes I thought were really open. West Brom scored first. Diangana ran the length of the field and had a really impressive shot from distance. They also hit the post. Diangana and Matias Pereira looked very dangerous, picking up the ball in pockets right on the edge of the box. Diangana in particular was tricky and dynamic throughout the game. And I totally see why West Ham supporters and their players were so upset that he was sold. Uh, Early on, all of Everton's attacks were coming from the left side. Luca Dini was joining the attack. After Calvert-Lewin scored in about the 30th minute, Everton pretty much snatched control of the game. But I did notice that there was a real need for the fullbacks to join the attack for Everton. Because James tucks in and Richarlison, while he can provide some width, does a little bit better in the box than he does hugging the touchline. So I thought that was an ode to what Luke said last week about their lack of speed and ability to attack from wide positions. It was definitely lacking and that need for the fullbacks to push up was clearly evident. They said it in the broadcast multiple times. Um, There was two red cards right before the half. Kieran Gibbs reacted to a late challenge. Uh, by Hamas by just punching him in the face. <laughs> and that got a straight red from Mike Dean, who was always happy to give out a red card because he did it again minutes later to Slavin Bilic. <laughs> Bilic, I guess, is like this no-nonsense center back in his playing days, but now he kind of just reminds me of like a middle school art teacher because he wears these like skinny black suits and has an earring. Uh, but after those red cards, West Brom bunkered down. There was a top-class free kick by Matthias Pereira in the 47th minute. Yeri Mina could have done a little bit better to get his head on it, but it was still a ridiculous free kick. And Pereira is starting to remind me of Buendia from Norwich City last year in that I think he's going to start to get linked with some Premier League clubs come the winter transfer window or next summer because he's just going to create a ridiculous amount of chances and show some real quality on the ball. And then speaking of quality, James really showed it this game. He had a left-footed shot from outside the box that he pummeled into the lower left corner. 
And he also had a chipped MLS assist to unlock the defense for Dominic Calvert-Lewin's second. <laughs> and just a final thought, Alan got a lot of talk yes, or last week for just yelling during the whole game, and I heard the same thing. I thought he talks a little bit more than your buddy with relationship problems after a few drinks, just nonstop in his teammates' ears. <laughs> yeah, he is a loud one for sure. And that free kick by Pereira, oh my God. That was incredible. It was a beauty. Yeah, he got perfect whip on it. It was it was inch perfect, honestly. Yeah, incredible. What do you think of Alan as a player besides being the most vocal man within a 40-mile radius? Well, he, he had his work cut out for him in the first half because I believe it's Pereira who occupies like kind of where he was. He's all over the field. Decent passer, super physical. I was impressed by him, but I was also a little bit left worried by his lack of ability to contain the Pereira and the Diangana runs. He did a decent job, but they had plenty of opportunities to score early on. Yeah, some uh, some runners from midfield may be difficult to, to contain. Once again, that lack of pace, especially midfield, with you need really need Docore occupying those runs from deep. To keep them to keep them contained. So that was Everton five, West Brom two. Dominic Calvert Lewin. I thought, I mean, he's he's really making a name for himself for as a striker in the Premier League. I want him. I want to see him in the England team this summer if the Euros do take place. I think he could really add something to that team. He's been the striker for his age group for as long as he's been with youth national teams. He's obviously outgrown those now, but I could see him. 100% getting a look. I mean, if you're giving Danny Ings call-ups, I think Dominic Calvert-Lewin is just as as warranting. I like Danny Ings as a player, but I mean... I was going to say, do not hate on Danny Ings. No, but Dominic Calvert-Lewin is a little <laughs> more upside. I, I agree completely. I really want to see him in that England team. So, moving on. The next game, Leeds United versus Fulham. A showdown of the two newly promoted teams. Obviously, West Brom there getting kind of thrashed but Leeds versus Fulham Leeds looked really good last week and they continued where they left off Helda Coster is some player from what I've seen so far that finish in the first five minutes off the crossbar into the back of the net ridiculous shot phenomenal finish goalkeeper had absolutely no chance there Leeds really continued I thought to to prove themselves as a, a solid side they were Taking the game to Fulham, I didn't see Fulham really do too much. But a theme of the weekend, a penalty given away. Cock continues his disastrous start to the Premier League season. He has one of those penalties where a runner's running down the side of the box, going nowhere. They're not in front of the goal. Besides a cutback, you can't really do anything dangerous from that area of the pitch. He goes to ground. He tries to pull his legs away, but at that point, you're already so committed, sliding in, and he takes the penalty there, or gives away the penalty there. And I really wanted to compare that, because we saw that so many times within these first two weeks. A player going to the ground on the corner of the box, the opposition attacker running through, and just getting a toe to it, tapping it beyond them. And then if you're going to ground, you're sliding, you're making contact, there's nothing you can do. It's in an area of the pitch where they can't score from. I think Sev said uh, when we were talking midweek that the 
the punishment just doesn't fit the crime. And it really reminds me of watching the NBA. And any time a three-point shooter was fouled, the commentators just disgusted. It's the worst foul in the NBA. And I think that's the worst foul in soccer. Yeah, you talked about how it is the letter of the law, and it is the letter the letter of the law. It's a penalty in its nature, but one hundred percent, the the crime does not match the punishment. It's it's a really tough one to live with, and it's a discipline that some of the top defenders in the world consistently show, where they're not making those rash challenges from non threatening areas because they know that they're not. It's not worth risking the the punishment. Exactly. And we did see that in the Wolves game, which we will get that, which we will get to later. So Mitrovic dispatches the penalty. Cool as you like the championship's top score from last season. Then another penalty. Joe Bryan then pushes Bamford in the box. Silly foul. Click steps up, dispatches it. 2-1 leads. And now in the second half, there was a phenomenal pass from Click in the buildup, who I think is really proving himself to be a great player and someone that some top clubs may be keeping an eye on to see if he can continue this throughout the season. But he slipped in Bamford. Bamford makes no mistake, really showing his quality also, side foots into the corner. And at this point, you're thinking Leeds is going to run away with it. Held Acosta again this time. Great play from Bamford again, who I thought is continuing his great run of form. He's, he's surprising me. I did not expect this from him after seeing him in the championship, but he has way more to his game than I originally thought. He picks out Helda Costa, who again, a brilliant finish, rifles past the goalkeeper. And like I said, all bets are off at this point. Leeds is winning. Leeds look way too much for Fulham. However, Fulham comes storming back and there's some great play by Angisa in the center of the park. He slips in Bobby Reed and Bobby Reed leathers it into the bottom left corner past Meslier. And then Fulham continued to come. There's a trademark Mitrovic header in the 67th. And now we had a game on our hands, or so we thought, but that was the end of the scoring. And Leeds hang on to win 4-3. Um, I thought Leeds' keeper, Meslier, looked absolutely dreadful. I know they have Kiko Casilla, who didn't even make the bench for this game in the squad. Uh, he had some... You know, he got into some trouble with some questionable remarks last season. Um, but I, I really think goalkeeper is a, a major black mark for Leeds at the time. And then speaking about goalkeepers, how weird is it to, to see Ariola on Fulham? Yeah, I know Meslier and and Kiko Casilla is a little bit of a point of contention between fan base between the fan base and a little bit of an unknown. Supposedly, Meslier is pretty highly rated. He he does not look French at all. He looks like he's Irish, by the way. Yeah, uh, straight out of the UK. I know that that's a point of contention. He's highly rated, but he's young. Obviously, Casilla is you know decorated, longtime goalkeeper. So, well, it'll be an interesting thing to monitor as the season goes on. But right now, it looks like Meslier is is the top choice. Lacking for confidence or, or something there. He's not up to standard standards that I think Leeds fans would hope to see or, or what we were kind of expecting from him either. Agreed. So moving on, and it is Crystal Palace versus Manchester United. Manchester United's 
first game of the season. Sev. First off, I'm a, I'm a sucker for a nice kit. And once again, Crystal Palace's whites are very clean. But that's not really relevant to the game. What is relevant to the game was the start that Manchester United had, which I thought was really sloppy. They were playing at 75% speed, it looked like. And they just had disregard for the small details of the game. Their passing wasn't crisp. Their touches weren't weren't emphasized. And they were pun- punished by Andres Townsend in the seventh minute, which was assisted by Jeffrey Schlopp. I cannot say Jeffrey Schlopp without making a couple Jeffrey Schlopp jokes. So here goes nothing. What is it called when Jeffrey Schlopp goes up for a header? <laughs> Schloppy toppy. What... <laughs> What a Palace supporters chant this week. <laughs> We're schlop of the league. Zaha, three goals in two weeks. The lad's on fire. He needs to schlop, drop, and roll. All right, so that last one was pretty terrible. But I liked my first Oh, two. my God. Anyways, uh, one thing that I noticed from last week to this week, seeing as though I, I watched both games pretty closely, was that Palace dropped their line of confrontation where they were pressing. If you remember last week, I said Ayu and Zaha did not want to press as high up as the field. As they were asked, well, they didn't have to this week. It was kind of an Uncle Roy masterclass, in my opinion, because he had the boys playing really passionately, cutting off passing lanes, and just going into every tackle with intent. Conversely, I thought Manchester United lacked the ingenuity to score against Palace's low block. They even got the ball in some really good spots, and they have the players to do it, but they, they lack the ingenuity. I never saw them changing the angle to try and work in a difficult pass or just slipping somebody through on net. They were far too content with taking those speculative shots from outside the box that are very easy to block. Kriate blocked probably five kicks because he's got those long limbs and is, is a pretty decent player. One of the stories of the game was the handball that happened in the 74th minute and the subsequent penalty save that was reviewed by VAR because David De Gea was off the line. Luke, do you have any thoughts on this? Because this is becoming a point of contention across the league. Yeah, and it's something that I thought was always harsh. Uh, You look at a penalty and, I mean, all odds are pretty much stacked in the favor of the kicker to score and the goalkeeper to not save it. You have the entire goal to aim at. You're 12 yards out. You can hit the ball literally 100 miles an hour. And unless the goalkeeper guesses the right side, he's probably not going to save it. So to bring in video replay on whether or not his feet are touching the line when he dives, I think is a little bit harsh. But, I mean, we wanted VAR to take wrong decisions out of the game, to take cheating out of the game, and... If it's in the rule book, I mean, I don't really see how you can argue against it. I agree. I think the harshest part is the fact that the VAR officials check the play behind the game. So the game continues running and then they notice something's wrong. The on-field referee blows the whistle and calls the game back. That's got to be so defeating for the players on the field, especially for a late penalty kick like that. But... It is, the, it is the world that we wanted when we said that, you know, that we wanted calls to be made correctly and when we introduced technology into the game, and it's, it's a harsh reality. I I'm, I'm, I'm find myself very torn with decisions like that. Uh, moving on, United fans can be happy that their new signing, Donny Van de Beek, scored. 
it wasn't a very pretty goal and it wasn't the unlocking of the defense that I thought United was was lacking throughout the game. It was a mishandled cross that Donny van de Beek scrambled on the end of. I've said it before, but those shots of a dumbfounded Ollie Gunnar Solskjaer do little to inspire confidence in me. And I just wonder how the United fans out there feel. I know that they're pretty happy with the fantastic form that United wrapped up the 2020 season with. And I'm sorry if I if I sound negative in my review of this game, but it was a far cry from that form. And all he said, it's going to take four or five games to get back into form. And that's something that we really need to watch with a close eye because that's a lot to ask for a team that has ambitions like United has season in, season out. Yeah, and I mean, I... It's part of me just doesn't think that it's the style of play that Ali really wants to to play. That that means the team takes a while to get started and takes a while to get in rhythm because I don't think Ali's got the pedigree necessarily that we expect from managers that play those intense, well known, specific styles. But maybe I'm wrong. Maybe his team needs to get its legs underneath itself. Uh, I mean, they had an extra week to prepare. I know that's because they were in Europe late, but I do think it's slightly concerning for United fans, especially when they were so ecstatic at the end of last season and they saw the great play from Bruno and all these other great players. Agreed. Well, they're going to have to pick up their play moving forward because they're United and they'll be under constant scrutiny from not only their fans, but also global media. For sure. And nice to see Donny get off the mark. It's always tricky when you move to a, a club like United, but he looks like he may be hitting the round running. I know he just came on as a sub and kind of a consolation goal at the end, but always nice to see a player grab a goal on their debut. But moving along from the shock United defeat that ruined Smeek's Pickums to Arsenal West Ham. So Arsenal going that 3 4 3 again. It looked on paper that West Ham would be in a more 4-2-3-1 formation, but they were playing more of a 5-4-1 in match. They had Mikel Antonio as the lone striker once again, who is surprising everybody. Uh, I mean, I kind of, I'm a big fan. I, I love seeing him up there. He just physical, determined, number nine. And I, I think he's a great player. I mean, they found a gem there to be their striker out of, Really nothing. I remember he used to play wingback um, a few years ago. So I'm glad that he's he, that he's stepping in. But I was looking at the bench for this game, and I know they spent you know 30 million dollars on Fornals, 23 million dollars on Bowen, who was performing really well in the championship. But I mean, you have Yarmolenko, who's around 20 million dollars. You have Felipe Anderson, who's around 40 million dollars. You have Lanzini. And then you have Allaire, who was your main striker, who is $44 million on the bench. I, I mean, you talk about poorly run clubs, and I don't think there's many in the Premier League, at least, that spring to mind more than West Ham. But getting to the game, I, I thought Arsenal looked decent enough. They looked assured in possession for the most part. And again, I, I just keep comparing them to what I saw at the beginning of last season and I really do think Arteta is making some good strides with this team. But first game, first goal of the game, you need an injection of pace 
to really unlock a defense like West Ham. They were sitting back, defending super deep. And Arsenal, with this newfound spirit that they have, turned the key, sped the game up. And it was great balance and strength from Saka, the young new number seven at Arsenal, who burst away in the midfield, slipped through Aubameyang, who turned creator, found a beautifully chipped ball into Lacazette, who had a bullet header, and that opened the scoring for Arsenal in the 24th minute. At that point, you thought Arsenal would probably continue this run of form and kind of assert their dominance on the game. West Ham would have to come out of that beat defensive shape, uh, and I thought Arsenal would, would be able to exploit more of those gaps. However, West Ham actually looked mm-hmm. better after that, I thought. I mean, they caused Arsenal some real problems, and it was Antonio, the aforementioned, who opened the scoring. There was some great play by Fornals in the build-up to that game. Uh, I'm not sure if you saw that touch, but, I mean, he he's obviously proven his worth over the however many mil- hundreds of millions of pounds is on the bench. He fed it inside to Suchek, who found Bowen, who found an overlapping Fredericks, who played it across the box to Antonio, who showed that strength and that physicality in the box and tucked home for... 1-1. One, one. Sev, were you uh, a little nervous? I actually game wasn't was nervous. I completely agree that West Ham looks so much better from like the 30-minute mark to halftime and also just out of halftime. But I thought we were possessing the ball pretty well and getting the ball in decent areas of the pitch and just weren't shutting down the West Ham counter effectively. But that I think that goal really came down to both a perfectly executed break and also attacking the weakest part of the field, which is where Said Kalasinac occupies. Uh, without Kieran Tierney on the pitch, we look like a completely different side. It's a glaring hole in our roster, and I hate to pile on Kalasinac too bad, but I actually think he could have done a lot better to stifle that counterattack. That's fair enough. And yeah, I, I know Tierney has really revolutionized that defense since he's since he's come in and there's new signings, Saliba and Gabrielle. I'm sure Arsenal fans are hoping to see them help turn that around, help prevent these these goals because, I mean, from then on, West Ham had some other great chances to double their lead. Antonio had a phenomenal chance around like three or four yards from goal, which Leno saved well. Suchek hit the bar with a header. And from watching this game, I, I thought West Ham were going were gonna to snatch a winner and Arsenal were going to be back where they started, but once again, they found that extra oomph that I'm not sure if it's a, it's a new mentality that this side has, but I've been so used to just a weak backbone from Arsenal, but they continue to, to keep proving me wrong and, and it's expanding and getting these better results. And it was another MLS assist for Buyako Saka who slipped in Ceballos and found young Eddie Nikita time to call Eddie. in the 85th minute. Time to call Eddie. Eddie. Time to call it Eddie. Yep, the goal-scoring phenom youngster scores in the 85th minute. I mean, there were some multiple VAR reviews in this game, but I'm glad all three goals stood. Uh, it would have been a shame to see any of those chalked out, and Arsenal were victorious 2-1. Yeah, I think you, you summed it up really well. Much different backbone from this team this year. Much different backbone from this team since Arteta took over, but as of late, really grinding out results in games where we weren't playing as well as as Arteta would have hoped. I turned on this game in the 73rd minute 
before I eventually rewatched the whole thing. So I watched the last 10 minutes up until the goal and then also subsequently. And I was happy to see that despite the 1-1 scoreline for at least the last 15 minutes of action, Arsenal were definitely taking it to West Ham. And I think that that final goal was deserved to say nothing of West Ham's chances earlier on. But just a good result for, for an Arsenal team that maybe wouldn't have found this result in the past. One that makes many people call a team worthy champions. That's a type of not saying, not making any bold predictions, but that winning a game like that is often looked upon as the mental sign that you are a good team and that a bad performance doesn't stop you from winning. Multiple of those wins will be season-defining, without a question. For sure. Moving on to a, I mean, pretty fantastic game. Southampton-Tottenham. Once again, Sev, you got other good games. Take it away. Yeah, this game was interesting. It was very closely contested in the first half. Southampton had plenty of chances to score. Kane also had plenty of chances to score. Two of his goals were called offsides, both because of his teammates running in offsides positions. The first one, which was on Heung-Min Son, was pretty tough. They pulled out the VAR stencil and determined that he was centimeters offside. The second one on Lucas Moura, a little bit more offside than the Heung-Min Son offside call. But a sign of things to come, and we'll get to that later. Uh, Danny Ings scored the first goal of the game. He did not score a shit goal, as he's been accustomed to doing and known for doing. He had a very impressive settle on a long ball from Kyle Walker-Peters and hit a volley right after that first touch that beat Hugo Lloris to his bottom left. The game really... Is Danny Ings evolving? Danny Ings may be evolving. Is he evolving from that lovable, scrappy goal-scoring, rough-looking center forward we all know and love? He is. I think he's a fan favorite across across the across Europe and the States because he's just a good player. There's no other way to get around it, despite what look like some less pretty goals sometimes. My dad has the I'm saying, so happy to see him succeeding. He's... he's there's a saying that the prettiest girl in the ugliest group or the ugliest girl in the prettiest group, I would say he's the latter or the smartest person <laughs> in the dumbest class or the dumbest person in the smartest class. He's the dumbest person in the smartest class. He's like the lowest level of that top tier of striker in the Premier League because he does it. With yeah, I, I completely agree. And I mean, I mean, how, you have to root for someone with back-to-back ACLs, and I just think his story is so incredible. And you can just tell every team he's ever been a part of, everyone roots for the guy, everyone believes in him, and I'm I'm so happy to see him now reaching the level that we all knew he could hit. Yeah, and quite the achievement to get that England call-up in their most recent games in the UEFA Cup or whatever that thing's called. Yeah. This game was really... Not a fan of you. Sorry, you can go. I was going to say not a fan of the international game. So whatever. Um, Scouts, not English. So this game was really defined by what took place in the second half. Son scored four goals or sorry. His first one was the end of the first half. Three were in the second half, but it was really, he was the story of the game. He made these repeated runs that split Stevens and Kyle Walker Peters, or just straight came off Kyle Walker Peters shoulder and Kane, who was either just pinning a center back or dropping into the space between the center backs in the midfield, kind of where a false nine would operate, would receive the ball, immediately turn, and hit Son with 
just a perfectly timed run into space. There was times where they were overloading Kyle Walker-Peter's side and making him choose maybe for one of the goals, but for the three others, he was just beat for pace and timing by a what was an absolutely fantastic game by Heung-Min Son. And I think that's why we saw those Kane offsides goals happen because Son was just patrolling the back line, waiting for a pass to find Kane's feet centrally and making beautiful, beautiful runs, also assisted by a variety of passes. One was a perfectly timed cross. Another was a delicate chip over the center backs. Just, I think they call that link-up play. And the link-up play that was going on between Kane and Son was really top class. Uh, But there was also some pretty dreadful defending from Southampton. And Kyle Walker-Peters did not cover himself in glory going up against his former team. But just all, all, all credit goes to Harry Kane and Heung-Min Son for, for their connection. Son, again, with four goals. Harry Kane, for those four assists on those four goals. And also scored off a rebound at the end of the game. The game finished 5-2, but Heung-Min Son's four goals, 100% the story of the game and maybe the story of the weekend. Yeah, and I think it is called link of play. <laughs> uh, I think you hit the nail the nail on the head with that one. I actually saw a graphic over the weekend of the most productive combinations in the Premier League, I think from uh, the past few years. And, I mean, we, we talk, wax lyrical about so many different players in the Premier League, you know, Sadio Mane, Mohamed Salah, uh, you think Christian Pulisic, Mahrez. <laughs> Mares, Sterling, Aguero, Jesus, De Bruyne, all these all these phenomenal players in the Premier League. And Harry Kane, I, I think it was a top six or eight. Harry Kane was on that list three times. One with Deli Alley, one with Christian Eriksen, and one with Heung-Min Son. I think that just shows how underrated, not only how he is as just an all-around striker, but the link-up play that he can provide. Yeah, I was I was so impressed by the variety of through balls he hit to Son. And, and a sixth sense to time them, too. He's dropping into these pockets or he's pinning a center back. And many times he's not even looking at the run of Son. It's, it literally is a sixth sense. There's no other way to describe it. So impressive. Just a really, really good performance from, from Tottenham in the second half. And, you know... We wanted we, we called them out last week. We wanted to see a more attack-minded, organized, direct team. And that's exactly what they gave us this game. It, it was. And I think it was that fourth goal for Son uh, where Kane hit that without really looking. That pass to the middle of the field, which I thought was just incredible. And yep, like you said, we were we were begging for this t- Tottenham team to, to turn it around and play more attackingly. And of course, I dropped Son from my fantasy team. <laughs> last week and he goes and scores four goals so can't win them all cannot win them all so moving on to newcastle versus brighton an interesting game and when the team lineups graphics popped up on my screen and i saw andy carroll and callan wilson up front that just gave me such great jermaine defoe and peter crouch vibes just such a throwback to that old school tottenham front line and sev is Tariq Lamptey just the best player in the world? I'm, I am I don't know where to start on him, but I, every time I see him, I fall more in love with him. He's 
got the the cutest little face, and he is the fastest person I've ever seen, and I just love how he plays. Yeah, if he's not the best player in the world, it's because Messi's still there, but I think we can all agree you got to drop Ronaldo down at this point. Got to drop Ronaldo down, De Bruyne down, Van Dyke down. Bring up Lamptey. I mean, Lamptey's number two. No, I mean, he's taking he's <laughs> taking the league by storm. Just his 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 energy is it's infectious. Everybody loves him. Yeah, and it's incredible. And to think Chelsea, who now obviously have Reese James, who's, don't get me wrong, a brilliant player, but I mean, he's on the books with Chelsea and they let him go to Brighton. And we all know what happened to the to numerous Chelsea players, which they've let go. Lukaku, De Bruyne, Mohamed Salah. I, I, I mean, I want Tariq Lamptey to become the next best thing. So I'd love if he joined that upper echelon of players that Chelsea regret leaving. I'm not saying he's there right now, but I mean, he looks incredible. But anyway, the game, which I think surprised many people, really unfolded in Brighton's favor the, the entire game. It was Tariq Lamptey, of course, who helped open the scoring. He went on an amazing run, cut inside, cut down the byline, cut back again, was everywhere. Alan set Maximin, just couldn't keep up with him. Dives in, sizes him down, and Lamptey wins his side of PK. And it's every Arsenal fan's favorite striker, Neil Mope, who buries that penalty, uh, I think, in the, around the third minute. Then he scores another one. A few minutes later, to make it Brighton 2-0 against Newcastle. Ruled out by VAR, but later reverted after it showed that he was clearly not involved in the first run of play and then behind the ball on the cross, which he duly put away into the bottom left corner. There was a few really heavy challenges from Newcastle in, in the first half and really throughout the game. And, I mean, I know that's big-headed Bruce's... Is, mentality to get stuck in and and to be a nuisance to the to the opponent but I I was watching this game with gritted teeth honestly uh, I was just not a fan of a lot of challenges going in and that Shelby tackle on on Lamptey was not a good watch whatsoever however Newcastle looked a little bit different of a side after the halftime break Callum Wilson, who we've known for just being a clinical striker, you don't get many opportunities being at a, a lower table side. And he spawned an awful miss over the bar from a brilliant cross. He put that over the net, over the crossbar. And Brighton, after that, continued to assert their dominance on the game. They created some more chances. And then in the 83rd minute, Connolly wraps up the game. A brilliant ball from Mope sees him into the box, and Connolly dispatches that with a curled effort. And then this Basuma tackle, I haven't really seen many instances like this before. He He's trying to control the ball. It bounces off his arm, and then he goes and does an, a kind of a karate kick to try and just get a heel on it and absolutely classes Jamal Lewis in the head, nearly takes his head off. I I hate to see him get a red card for that because it's obvious he's not looking to really do anything malicious there. But I mean, you can't you just can't kick somebody yeah. in the head. You said it right there. It's 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 that conversation about a high boot trying to settle a ball is really unfortunate because he got Jamal Lewis like right in the face by the nose and the eyes, which is never a place you want spikes to go. 
clearly a red card just based on the danger that was created by it. Basuma is kind of he. I'm unfortunately I'm going to give him the treatment that you kind of have to give players that are instigators, in that you do reckless things because you're an instigator, and one eventually one of those things might be really dangerous, even if that's not your intention. Basuma is like known for being a midfield enforcer and being a little bit of an instigator. And even if it wasn't his intention to hurt Jamal Lewis, you play like that, you can put people in danger just by your the nature of your style. So I'm no by no means calling Basuma a bad person Basuma a bad person, but that can happen and it's just scary. Agreed. Um I mean nearly every team has to have one of those players, so I can't I don't think it I think it's a little bit harsh to put it on them in that way, but I agree if you have a certain play style it can then negatively affect how you're perceived and then ultimately what ends up happening by playing with that play style. So totally agree with that. But Brighton, again, looked really good. I thought they played really well against Chelsea. 3-0 against Newcastle. That's not a result Newcastle fans would want to see. Uh, a little bit worried about them um, considering that Brighton, although they look great, I don't think they're thought of as, as a top 10 team but interesting to see how that unfolds throughout the rest of the season. But now, pretty big ticket game, one that was described as the game of the weekend. And once again, Sev, it's all you. Definitely the game of the weekend based on the pedigree of the teams competing in this one. Unfortunately, it took a turn for the worse at at halftime, but we'll get to there when we get to halftime. I thought the game was played pretty open. Both teams were playing high lines when when they could, when Chelsea wasn't pressed into their own half. Because Liverpool's press, I talked about it last show, and I'll probably talk about it every episode we record for the rest of the season. It's just so formidable. It's so tough to play through. And it was it was that way again. They definitely put Chelsea in some really difficult positions. But Chelsea did try to play the ball out of the back, and I give them I give them credit. They did a commendable job doing it I thought that they at least in the first half balanced what you have to do when you play a team that presses and that you work it out from the back when you can when the pass is there but the worst thing you can do is force something those turnovers in your own half are the number one cause of goals scored in soccer so when you get into a bad spot you unfortunately do have to make the smart play and boot it long so again I thought Chelsea did a good job of balancing that just probably why they didn't concede in the first half, despite a lot of Liverpool pressure. And I thought Conte played so well, doing of all things, dribbling through the center of the park like a madman against like a ridiculous Liverpool press. Uh, and that helped them from being overrun. And Chelsea was just looking for Havertz and Werner making calculated runs behind the Liverpool back line to stretch the game a little bit. I thought Werner, Mount, and Havertz looked good, but I thought they needed one more option going forward. And I'm not saying that because they have two top-class attackers that are working to full fitness. I actually felt like there's times where they, they linked up well, but they just needed one more outlet. But Liverpool, more possession in the first half, slightly better chances. I guess maybe the reason why I'm not... Speaking so highly of Liverpool is because I 
almost enter the game expecting them to dominate in a manner because of what they did last year and for parts of the season before. And I was maybe a little bit more impressed by Chelsea, who didn't look great last week, not succumbing to the Liverpool press in the first half. Now, unfortunately, everything that I just said becomes undone when Christensen makes one of the most despicable mistakes that you can make as a defender. (laughs) He tackles Sadio Mane. Instead of doing any other thing to impede his progress, he grabs him with his whole body and tackles him to the ground with Kepa coming in to make a challenge. At first... Do you not think Mane's getting there first? I would take my chances on Mane getting there second as opposed to giving up the red card knowing that my team is playing down 10 men for a whole half against a team that lost three games in the Premier League last year and can absolutely dominate a team. I think when you become a defender, something that you have to weigh always is is what is going to cause the least damage to my team. And this is just a situation where it's absolutely ridiculous from Christensen. And unfortunately, I was going to make this big rant about how you can maybe tug a shirt or do something a little bit less dramatic than tackling him and get away with no red card. But we saw today in the Villa, or sorry, I think it was yesterday in the Via Sheffield game that even that can cause a red if the referee decides that it's uh, denying a clear goal scoring opportunity. So not a huge fan of Christensen in this game because he ruined what was a horror, what was going to be an awesome contest and what <laughs> had been an awesome contest to that point. Yeah. I mean, I, I see what you mean. I think, I mean, getting yourself red carded, what you have to think what's worse is you concede a goal or you get red carded in, especially in the first half. I think for the, betterment of the team I think I would rather just concede the goal even though there's no there's no guarantee that even if you get onto 10 men the other team do score but it's so hard like you said against this Liverpool team to withstand even 45 minutes of them not not finding the back of the net in that circumstance I have to say there was three things that were going to happen it was Christensen get sent off Kappa gets sent off or Sadio Mane touches the ball. I, I think that it's really it's hard one to say Liverpool. that those are the three outcomes. So, Anything can happen. There's infinite possibilities, but... I mean, or... Yeah. I mean, there's infinite possibilities. That's an alternative universe, but... Yeah, I I mean... I don't... I want to see... I want to see good games of football. I always want, you know, the team in red to win, but like... Yeah, I would have loved to see football. 90 minutes and see how this unfolded. But I did think on the balance of play that in the first half, maybe Liverpool slightly edged it, but I'll let you, I'll let you continue before I go off on another tangent. Yeah, no, uh, I guess you're right. And on your, on your take about the, the outcomes, but I, I just really wanted to see a closely contested game. And for Christensen to give away that red mean, meant that that wasn't going to happen once Chelsea went down to 10 men. Uh, Sadio Mane scored twice in the second half. One really notable goal was a pass back to Kepa, Aretha Balaga, who has become synonymous with goal goalkeeper errors. 
and he just took far too long getting the ball off his foot while Sadio Mane, one of the fastest players in the world, was bearing down on him. And Mane cut off his pass right in front of him and just deflected the ball into the goal. Just another tally to Kepa's unfortunate reputation for making blunders. I think something that every Liverpool fan will want to talk about was the fact that the new signing, Thiago Alcantara, came on at half and looked really good. I just want to pump the brakes a little bit from what I've seen from these takes on Twitter. Because if you know Thiago and you know his quality and you know he's coming off, you know, European Championship, you know that he has the, he's probably got the the best passing technique in the world. That's a hot take. But in my opinion, I've always thought he has the best passing technique in the world. So I, 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 I find it very hard to be impressed by him passing around a 10 man Chelsea just because I already know that that's the quality that he has. And so I, I just can't find myself being so blown away by that performance. You can be very happy that he looked so good, but he's a terrific player. I can assure you he'll be a terrific player for you guys and for Liverpool throughout the rest of the season and as long as he's there. And I just can't wait to see him with more training and in a more competitive action sometime soon because I said it at the beginning of the pod, he's one of my favorite players to watch. Yeah, and we can we can move on and not talk about Thiago too much because, I mean, I see him in warm-ups and he passes the ball three feet and I'm just sitting on the couch with my legs up in the air behind me just ooing and aahing. So I could literally talk and <laughs> about everything Tiago for just the rest of this podcast, but I'll save everyone from that. That was Liverpool 2, Chelsea nil, And moving on to the late game on Sunday, and it was Leicester versus Burnley. I thought it was super interesting, and I was actually very ready to, to see this game just because Burnley's famous center-back pairing of Ben Mee and Tarkovsky were out. And I was really wondering how these these new players at the back were, were going to play and perform for them. And I also thought it was slightly interesting that Ndidi was the center-back partnership for Lord Farquaad for, uh, for Leicester. I'm not sure if that's something we're going to see a lot this season. Uh, Ndidi obviously used to play that center-defensive role. Um, but I thought, I thought he performed on the whole pretty well. He had a, he did a good game back there. But... Sorry, just real quick, kind of similar to the um, Fabinho sliding into the back line. Exactly. Uh, I meant to mention played really well, but yeah, two two players with the profile to do well as a center back for sure. For sure, there's there's tall dominant uh, center defensive mids, and yeah, I completely agree. I thought, I mean, I Sadio Mane scored two goals, but I thought Fabinho was probably my man of the match in that Liverpool Chelsea game. But some some strange goals really in the first half in this game. Chris Wood is just an absolute bully <laughs> he he just swatted the Leicester defender James like he wasn't even or uh, Justin like he wasn't even there I was convinced and we've seen VAR rule goals like this out pretty much consistently over the past year of the Premier League I was convinced that after he chested it down the ball hit his arm and I've seen goals ruled out for way less than that just deflecting slightly off someone's arm in the box that didn't even end up scoring the goal. So I was very surprised that that goal was allowed. I think that's going to be an interesting thing to keep your eye on for the rest of the season. And then 
following that, uh, again, I thought this one uh, was slightly interesting. I, I really could not tell if this ball hit Perez after it was struck by, by Harvey Barnes. But anyway, Lester level it up. Great play by Barnes. He finds Vardy, who did phenomenally well, drives into the box, turns around, pulls it back to Barnes, who slots it in the corner once again. Did it hit Perez? I don't know. I feel like both of these goals should have been disallowed. I don't. I didn't even see a replay telling me whether or not Perez was offside or not. Slightly strange two first goals in this game. But anyway, I'm sure everyone likes to see goals just as much as I do. So on the whole, no complaints from those two. Uh, and then in the second half, one of the best passes of the season, I thought so far, Tielman's slipping it through to Castagna who makes that great overlapping run. He's looking for that ball back across the box, slid into Vardy. Um, but Peters, who was closing him out, deflects it past Nick Pope, and it is Leicester 2-1. More great play from Perez uh, this time, who drives into the box, turns, twists, slots it low across the box, little deflection, but it is the right-footed left back who comes in and, and slots at home. And it's Leicester 3-1 at this point. And Sev, the next scorer for Burnley. Is there a more Burnley name than Jimmy Dunn? No. He was Oh my god. Born... He sounds like he was just raised on a like dairy farm near Burnley. Dairy farm near Burnley, just born to be that dominant, just no pace whatsoever, just super physical center back for a team like Burnley, putting in some awful tackles along the way. <laughs> Finally, it was the Priet rocket into the top corner to make it four two. Harvey Barnes, I thought, was so involved throughout this game. Um, I know you alluded to, alluded to it last week on the pod. But, I mean, I don't know if James Madison is is hurt or just not fully fit. But, I mean, Harvey Barnes is that creator for me so far this season on Leicester. I'm going to sound like I'm like a footballer, NBA, or American sports announcer. But he's that dude. He's that dude? He's, he's that dude for Leicester. He's he's a really talented player. I'm a huge fan. Instead of look at Curry, man, it's look at Harvey, man. Yep, exactly. <laughs> yeah, no, I thought Harvey Barnes played exceptionally well, um, and I'm really I really want him to to kick on this season. He's another bright talent for England. So the next game was the early, or I guess it was the afternoon on Monday. It was the one o'clock kickoff on Monday, and I know it was the game that everybody was waiting. All week to watch. It was the Sheffield United versus Ashton Villa game. And it was really defined by an early red card. In the 12th minute, John Egan is locked up with Ollie Watkins as he's chasing a long ball on the Sheffield uh, deep right side of the field. They were locked up pretty well. Ollie might have had a step on John Egan. Regardless, whistle was blown and the the referee on field gave John Egan straight red for what was, I guess, seen as denying a clear goal-scoring opportunity. And this is kind of the opposite of what Christensen did in that John Egan definitely didn't do anything as dramatic as like putting his hands all over Ollie Watkins and tackling him or whatever. He grabbed him. He grabbed his arm. Ollie Watkins was doing his best to hold him off and not really budging either. So I guess it goes to show that a more subtle approach to taking on a an offensive player who's beaten you doesn't necessarily 
make you safe from getting red. It was shown to Mike Dean, who was the VAR referee, and he also ruled that it was denying a clear goal scoring opportunity. I think it says something that it was Mike Dean who that guy's never not going to sign off on a red card. I also I commented <laughs> on Ollie Watkins' physicality when we announced his move to Ashton Villa last week, and it was just shown clearly on that play. Sheffield defended well in this one, made Chris Wilde proud, and they actually broke out a few times. The most notable was in the 36th minute or 35th minute. Ollie Burke threaded a ball to Chris Basham, who was making a run backside of the defense in the box. He was taken down and Emmy Martinez, the new signing for Ashton Villa saved the subsequent penalty, which was a ridiculous penalty save. And it just got me to thinking, you know, Ashton Villa is a team that upgraded their roster. They stayed up by the skin of their teeth last year. And I think Emmy Martinez might end up being one of, if not the most impactful signings that any club does this this transfer window just because Villa might be able to secure a much safer place rather than fighting for promote or for to stay up uh, like they were last year because if anybody watched Emmy Martinez last year he was so so good for Arsenal down the stretch I completely agree and he can he can win you games single-handedly I mean if we looked at what Dean Henderson did last exactly. year for that Sheffield United team how much of a difference Nick Pope makes. And we I know we talked about it last week with Kappa and how that position at Chelsea, like it has been working out. They spent so much money on him, they couldn't really replace him. But if you upgrade that goalkeeper spot, it is it is so important. Look at Liverpool go to the Champions League final with Carius. They lose because of what? Their goalkeeper. They go upgrade their goalkeeper next year. They win it. I think it's just I think it's overlooked at a lot of times and everyone wants that that star striker or that that tricky winger, but I I totally agree. Emmy Martinez, great great signing. Yeah, he was he was just so so good for Arsenal down the stretch last year. So huge fan of the signing. The game was decided in the 63rd minute when a corner kick came in. It was flicked on by Mings, who did a really good job of getting to it and getting a pretty graceful touch, considering how fast he was moving in the speed to the back post where Ingoyo finished it. Jack Grealish had a pretty solid game. I mean, he had a lot of space against the 10-man Sheffield United side, but he looked like a wealthy oil tycoon from the nose down and then the most fouled player in the Premier League from the nose up because he got, he's got that mustache-goatee combo that just <laughs> is, it just screams oil, like 1800s United States oil money. And those socks were low as ever. Oh, the socks were low as ever. I, I don't know what his leg routine is, but I, I, I think I need it. It's a great look for him regardless. And yeah. he missed two opportunities to add a Villa second. And uh, just final note, really, really, really excited to see what him and Ollie Watkins can do this year. They they looked like they have potential to link up and, and be pretty productive tandem. And then just final, final note, Ender Stevens. Is there a better name in the Premier League than Ender Stevens? Ender Ender Stevens. I don't know. Ender why. Stevens. Love that. I feel like the first name Ender, you're born to be something. Yeah, you're born to be like you got a it. physical footballer for sure. <laughs> so final game of the weekend, and it was Man City kicking off their pursuit of the Premier League title after their 
slightly lackluster season last year against the team that beat them twice last did season. The did the double. Uh, Wolverhampton Wanderers. And, I mean, straight away, just the Wolves starting lineup, I thought was not lackluster, but I was just, I really wanted to see a Dama Traore, a Traore, rather, be played up higher. And I think he's he's slightly wasted as a wingback. And I I was disappointed just seeing that. And then, obviously, Wolves losing Jata on on Saturday. They had Potence and Neto joining Jimenez up top. Um, We all knew how Wolves were going to play. They have that five-at-the-back system. Normally, very solid, very dangerous on the break. Super hard for a team like City uh, to play against. And just talking about the City lineup, it was Ake's debut. Thought he did decently well. Foden, uh, interestingly enough, was chosen over Mares and Tarez. And it was Zach Steffen, the American goalkeeper, who made the bench for the Blues. So, like we talked about earlier, this stupid challenge that these defenders always make. City, I, they look dangerous enough, but Wolves, I, I, I just trust them weirdly enough, to, to hold a team like that off for a long period of time and then maybe grab something. But it's KDB. Kevin De Bruyne surges into the box. He's he's next to the goal 10 yards away. I mean, unless you do something absurd, you're not scoring from there. Saiz goes in. I mean, not a whole bunch of contact, but KDB gets a toe on it, and it's a penalty to, to Man City. And... Who, like I, I Seb, I, I'm just it just pisses me off so much, but because <laughs> I thought that was going to be a really interesting game until the floodgates looked like they were going to open. KDB slots in the penalty, and Wolves just never really got going. Uh, they didn't look great before that, but I think that was really the the nail in the coffin in that first half. Confidence was low after that, and they didn't press City high enough. I didn't think. Uh, City were just all over them, controlling the game. Rodri and Fernandinho uh, as the dual CDMs. I think it would be interesting to see if they continue with that through the rest of the season. Uh, they looked like they gave the the defense way more protection than their usual Bernardo Silva or, or Gundogan would. Yeah, that dual pivot is going to be significantly more effective at stuffing out counterattacks since 17 17- Teams in the Premier League are going to be completely pinned for 90 minutes versus them. So I kind of do like that dual pivot. I didn't notice that that's how they were playing. So that's an interesting observation. Yeah, I thought that was, I mean, I'm just interested to see if that's how they play. I mean, that's just not Pep's mentality or or really his his meta for how he plays. You know, he's so used to that. I mean, that Barcelona team, just Busquets and Xavi and Iniesta ahead of him. Always single pivot. Interesting to see that the EPL may finally be causing him to to adapt slightly uh, with that dual pivot. <gasps> Not his tactics. <laughs> yeah, the the ball genius himself. But KDB evolved once again. Slips in Sterling, finds Foden, two 0 and I was ready to turn off at this point. But second half started, and Wolves. Not sure what that halftime team talk was from Nuno. Looked like a completely different team. Potence. I, I, yeah, I, not a player that I've really looked into all that much, but he looked like a man possessed when the second half started. 
had so many chances. I mean, I know he wasted a lot of them. He had that chip. He had the he had the miss before. He dummied the ball, and Neves had that pretty pathetic left-footed shot that Kyle Walker easily cleared. Wolves just had chance after chance after chance. I mean, I know we just talked about that double pivot, but United, I mean, City definitely don't look completely robust at the back. Mm-hmm. Wolves definitely broke him down. Adama Traore, I, I think, is just basically unplayable when he decides he wants to do something. When Jurgen Klopp calls somebody unplayable, they're unplayable. I believe Pulisic got a shout like that last season also. Yeah. Ben, <laughs> finally, Podence gets the ball. He doesn't have to shoot this time. Guess what happens? Megs De Bruyne oh. finds that big Mexican head of Raul Jimenez, who, I mean, absolutely belts mm-hmm. the ball with his head past Ederson. Phenomenal header there. And from then, I was really, really rooting, not biased though, that City would kind of capitulate, which we've seen them do, especially last season against Wolves when Adama Traore hit that third to win the game for Wolves. But no, they stayed strong. Uh, I think that showed uh, maybe an insight to how the team feels this year. They held on, and it was a late Gabriel Jesus winner. Deflected past Rui Patricio, who I thought actually played pretty well in goal for Wolves. Um, But that was 3-1 to Man City, and that's how it finished. So That's it for our weekly recap. We'll be right back with some of our world-famous segments. All right. First segment of the Soccer Football Show Week 2 Premier League coverage is, I think, what will eventually be known as everybody's favorite segment, Referee of the Week. And I could not be more proud to award the first Referee of the Week to one Mike Dean. He gave not one, not two, but three red cards in one weekend. <laughs> and I mentioned it. He is always happy to sign off on a couple of red cards. He gave his first red card to Kieran Gibbs, which was 100% a red card. The second was when Slavin Bilic tried to approach him and talk to him about... You can't do that to Mike And Dean. Mike Dean was having none of it. So he gave his second red card. And then the third, I mentioned it. He was the VAR assistant for the Ashton Villa versus Sheffield game. And he signed off on the red card. So two different games, two different players and a manager thrown in as well. I mean, it's going to take a lot to top that performance from my, it could, it might be the referee performance of, of the whole premier league season in week two that early shout out to Mike Dean referee of the week. He'll, you should expect his trophy in the mail sometime soon. Thank you, Mike Dean for a phenomenal first, second weekend of the premier league. Now, the second segment of the Soccer Football Podcast, one that we're going to, like we said on the first one, continue to do throughout the year. Second week of action, and it's our top five in form. And it's the man we talked about earlier on in the show who Sev can take. It is the hat-trick scoring Dominic Calvert-Lewin. Yeah, Dominic Calvert-Lewin, despite how horrible his ponytail is, I think you should just leave that thing at home. Uh put together a really solid week. And when you combine that with the game winning effort he had last week, I mean, he's, he's, he's in scolding hot form, just lethal. Every time he gets into the box, completely unlocked the defense this week, the West Brom defense getting on the end of loose balls in the box. West Brom was bound to succumb to the sheer pressure that Everton started putting on them. Once the 
once they went down to 10 men and Dominic Calvert-Lewin seized the opportunity, wasn't just the beneficiary and scored a really nice hat trick. Totally agree. Very deserving of the first top five in form. Um, second, it is after a poor performance in the first game week, uh, Heung-Min Son, who was a man possessed, four goals. I feel like any time a player scores four goals, it's a potential automatic inclusion in this top five. Yeah, I mean, and, and four impressive goals and four important goals and four goals that proved for at least a little bit longer that Jose Mourinho is the man for the job. And yeah, super impressive. I think we should note that Harry Kane had a really good game and maybe also could have made the top five in form. Personally, I opted for just the Sun inclusion because I felt like they worked in tandem and Sun got the goals. And so we put Sun in and Kane may have been deserving, but we just stuck with Sun for our one Spurs player this week. I was also slightly more disappointed in Harry Kane last week than I was Son. And just on the balance of play, we did not pick Kane. So it's number three, and it's Wilfred Zaha. And, I mean, you take down a Man United team being Crystal Palace, and he's the man who runs the show. He's scored in back-to-back weeks, and... I mean, yeah, he misses a lot of chances, but I think his quality is is pretty much undeniable at this point, and he can always add that that extra bit of dynamicism and just provide the the difference. Yeah, and if his biggest criticism throughout his whole career was been has been lack of production in the, in the statistical sense, then the fact that he has three goals in two weeks, we just have to acknowledge and commend. For sure, um, number four. Uh, he's going in back-to-back weeks, and in a team that's newly promoted, uh, it's normally very hard to do. Yeah, I know Leeds have scored seven goals now, but a newly promoted striker scoring that many, that definitely deserves an inclusion. Um, once again, Helder Costa was also up for debate here, but I think Patrick Bamford leading the line for a team like that is just so impressive because the amount of running and pressing and, and basically nothing balls he has to deal with throughout the game uh, can be difficult, but he's still getting on the end of things and tucking some home away. Yeah, and not that this went into our determination here. It was strictly based on the fact that he's had a productive two weeks, but the fact that they brought in Rodrigo as a record signing for $35 million and Patrick Bamford has made it so that he's still the guy right now, just really impressive and totally deserving of his spot on the list. Yeah, I, I really think that speaks volumes. And I know he didn't have the best of games this week, but you beat a top team like Chelsea. You score a hat-trick in the first week. You're involved in, in that all-decisive first goal. It's Mohamed Salah who keeps his place from the first week after that initial hat-trick. Sev? Yeah, I think he was the top guy last week in our inform list. We don't we don't introduce them in terms of like a hierarchy, but Luke and I talked off broadcast and he was the shoe in because of the hat trick and just how well he played. And frankly, nobody put together a week one and week two that was more impressive or impressive enough to, to knock him from, from the top five inform list. So yeah, deserving of the, of one of the five spots. 
for sure. And I'm sure there'll be some movement in that next week as we have some more games under our belt to really judge these new players uh, that have come into the league and the existing players that want to put the their stamp on it. And finally, we have the Rose and the Thorn of this week. The Rose was somebody who's been mentioned 10 times on this broadcast, but deservedly so. Put together a career game. It's Youngman's son. I cannot stress enough how precise his runs were, how great his link up with Harry Kane was, and how freaking fast that guy is. And I was I'm I'm an Arsenal fan. I don't like Spurs. I walked away from that game going like Hyungmin Son is a terrific player and deserves all of the credit in the world. That's this week only. Don't hold it, hold me to that the rest of the season. This week. So he's my rose. I mean it's it's that simple. He's been he's been elevating his game now for the past few seasons and I remember when he first came into the league, everyone had decent hopes for him, but I don't think anybody really expected him to become the player he is currently. I think about the players in the Premier League, and off the top of my head, I think he's top five. I mean, he's definitely one of the best wingers. If if he is still a winger, he's one of those players you put anywhere, he's going to do a job for you. He's got the talent to literally play anywhere, but I I cannot rate him highly enough he is I think the scariest player when I any side places faces Tottenham he can do the most can hurt you the most ways and Hung Min Son all credit to him back from the Korea nas- uh, national service and glad he is for the Premier League and then Thorn I'll let you take Thorn because that you you have the emotional investment in this game the thorn is Andreas Christensen, and I see why he did it. I mean, it's it's his initial fault that he let Sadio Mane run in behind him like that. I'm not all too pissed off that he that he decided to tackle tackle Sadio. You know, Liverpool they get that two 0 win, but like I said, I mean, everybody just wants to see their team play another full-strength side, have no excuses, and to get the better of that side. And like Seb mentioned earlier on, it was a pretty interesting spectacle, which was balanced on a knife edge in the first half, and Andreas Christensen robbed us of that. Yeah, and that's that's why I included him. Was was I think that's actually a very verbose way of putting it. Uh, oh, well, thank you. I like that, balanced on the knife edge. But um, yeah, he... he, he... He ruined what was bound to be a really exciting game with a kind of a clumsy decision. Um, yeah, it's going to take you uh, a while to get the soccer football podcast back in your back in your corner, Andreas. <laughs> <laughs> if he listens to this, we are in a terrific place. I just I'll take all the headlines yeah, in the world. If, if, if I'll take happens. it back. Um, Okay, yeah, so that was week two of the Soccer Football Podcast. We covered week two of the Premier League this week. We covered some ridiculous transfers, and I haven't been following transfers on a weekly seven-day basis ever. I just, it's the transfer window to me. I don't know if there was a more interesting, high-profile week of transfers in the history of the Premier League. There very well may be, but it was ridiculous. 
And we covered our top performers, our referee of the week, our Rose and Thorn. We gave you some great in-depth coverage. I hope you enjoyed it. Luke, any last thoughts? Potentially some recency bias there uh, with the transfer Fair window enough. claim. Um, some some great deadline days uh, that have happened. But no, I mean, 44 goals. That's, that's an incredible weekend in the Premier League. Great results, great games. I think this is going to be a really interesting season, and I can't wait for next week already. Can't wait for next week, and we will be there next week providing you with some great Premier League coverage. We hope you tune in again. We hope you enjoyed this episode. Peace out. Love you guys.